Let's just, let's stand and read First uh, Kings chapter eight, beginning in verse twenty-seven. We want to spend uh, most of our time today just thinking about why Israel was supposed to pray towards the temple that Solomon has built. First chapter eight, he's has a prayer of dedication, and so in, uh, starting in verse twenty-seven, we have something kind of interesting. It says, "But will God indeed dwell on the earth?" Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So we are, the set is, the, the stage is being set that this can't possibly be the, an end in itself, right? Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, a place which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servants offer toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people of Israel, when they pray towards this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear and forgive. Alright, so you may be seated. And he goes on to list seven different ways to our Things or scenarios why somebody would pray towards the temple, and each one has to do with sin, uh, for looking for forgiveness, right? And so it's just an interesting uh, thing here that that uh, Solomon. There's, there seems to be a change. There was no while the tabernacle was built, they didn't pray towards it. But now that the temple is built, there seems, there seems to be a change where now you can pray towards this temple and uh, that God will hear and forgive. And yet the temple is, can't possibly contain God, yet we know that it represents his presence. And uh, so there's something about this place that will cause God to regard sinners. And uh, I think the, I, the, the, the reason would be because if you think about what it represents, two main things took place both in the tabernacle and the temple. In the uh, first thing would take place, the main thing in one sense was that the high priest would offer uh, on the day of atonement uh, a, a goat or a, a, I think in that case a bullock, whatever. They would carry, of course, the blood into the most holy place, the place where God dwells in the Shekinah glory cloud. And make atonement for the people for all the sins that year, you might say, are covered. So God's wrath would be averted, as it were. And so it represents, first of all, the place where sin is forgiven, where the high priest makes atonement. So, and of course, clearly that's looking forward to the cross. And then, uh, the, the second main thing that took place, and that was on a daily, uh, sense, the, the regular priest, which we are priests of God now, right? The regular priest would use the furnishings. They would use the, they would have, they would offer sacrifice. They would wash in the labor. They would, uh, use the, uh, they would eat of the bread of life, the, the table of, of showbread. They would be guided by the, uh, candelabra, the, 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 you know, the seven, uh, candles that were in there. And they would make prayers at the at the prayer of uh, the uh, golden altar where the incense was burned up before the Lord. The Lord would hear that, right? Uh, it was a sweet smelling savor. So, based on the once once a year, you might say, work of the high priest, the regular priest had access to worship the Lord. And so, it's not difficult to see into the typology of 
what was going to happen. Christ and then uh, in the forgiveness of sins. And then as he builds the church, he, he enables us to now approach God and worship and serve him. He allows sinners to do that, right? And so, as, you, as we think about all that, and what went on, and then primarily, like I say, it was a place where there was atonement was made. What the priest served there, yes, but it was that day of atonement that was the big thing. And uh, Solomon here in his dedicated prayer of dedication, we're reminded here that all this must illustrate something else because God doesn't need a house. He can't dwell in a house. And so we know that it represents, of course, when Christ does his work and he starts to build the church, the, the real dwelling place of God, the eternal dwelling place of God, because God dwells in us and we are his house and that shall continue forever. And uh, so that's ultimately what all this is looking forward to. Well, then we come to verses 31 through 53, which we really did not read there. Let's just re- maybe start in verse 31 and read a little bit of it. If a man sins against his neighbor, remember there's seven scenarios here, and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. And when your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you. So there's a second scenario. And then if they turn again, Towards you and acknowledge your name and, and pray and plead with you in this house or towards this house. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. We'll see uh, in a moment in Daniel, Daniel doing that very thing. They've been carried off to Babylon. And uh, now Daniel is praying. He would every day open up his windows towards, uh, in that case, toward the west, toward where the temple would be, and he would pray towards the temple. He would confess the sins of the people that brought them into captivity to begin with, and then ask God to restore them back to the land. So he was doing what Solomon, what what the word of God said they should do. And so you have these seven sinners. The first one, if a man sins against his neighbor, if they're defeated by their enemies. Thirdly, if God sends no rain because of their sin. Uh, fourthly, if there's any, uh, there's a whole collage of uh, plagues that are mentioned here that God might sin because the people have sinned. Fifthly, when a foreigner joins himself to Israel because he hears of the greatness of God and he sees what God has done with Israel and he joins with Israel, he he prays towards that um, building as he uh, asks for forgiveness of sins. Sixthly, when they must fight. An enemy, and they ask God to prepare them for that. And then sixth, seventhly, um, if they enter finally into captivity because of their sin. And so, the severity of God towards sin is never ignored. But there's always seen, a, there's a way of forgiveness that is given uh, in the Old Covenant. The, the covenant was never uh, as long as you don't sin. Because that was never going to happen. The, 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 re, the way the Israelites broke covenant was not because they sinned, and they sinned quite a bit, but it was the idolatry. It was forsaking God. Their sins, the law provided forgiveness. They would take a uh, lamb or some sort of uh, animal, and they would go, and they would a father would do that for his family, and of course the priest did on the Day of Atonement. There were all these ways that, and there was, 
uh, there was uh, sacrifices for sins that you knew you had committed, and then there were sacrifices for sins that you didn't even realize. You know, you said you had done it, and so you kind of covered it all. And so, as long as Israel was faithful to obey the Lord in those things, that there was not sin wasn't the issue. There were provisions made for it. It was when they turned their back on God altogether and started worshiping other gods that there was there's no sacrifice for that, right? There's no way you can say, well, you know, I'm an idolater and I, and I don't recognize the true God really, or I like to add other gods to him, but as long as I make this sacrifice, God's happy. No, that, that was never going to fly, right? And so that's kind of uh, that, that. And then as you read the Old Testament, it becomes very plain that that was Israel's big problem. They, yeah, they they sinned. As all people do, but it was because they would not worship God alone that God says that that was the end of that. And so, <clears throat> you have this uh, this thing that Solomon says that when you sin in, in all these different scenarios of sin, you, if you pray towards the temple, your sins will be forgiven. You say, well, you know why? Well, I think what what's going on here is that since the temple represents not just the Lord himself, but the place of atonement, or the cross, I think that the, the the New Testament counterpart to that then is that, like First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, in a sense, when we're converted, what do we do? We, we pray in light of the cross. Well, you know, we don't pray in the direction of the cross, but we pray in light of it. And then we pray in Jesus' name. So we're praying towards the work of Christ, you might say, or based on the work of Christ. And that's what Jesus says. If you pray in my name, the Father will give you whatever you desire, whatever you need, right? And so praying in Jesus' name isn't a ritual that, well, i got to make sure I tack on Jesus' name. Uh... And, and uh, it's almost a point where, especially we need to think about it ourselves, perhaps point this out to our children, because it's we've made it uh, kind of like a ritualistic add-on to our prayers in Jesus' name. And it's not a bad thing, because in a sense it's, it's the right thing to do, but it's void, I think, if we don't do that understanding that, why we're doing that. We're praying in Jesus' name. What we're doing is we're praying based on the atonement. Because of Christ's sacrifice, I now have access to the Father based on the fact that I now have His righteousness imputed to me and my sins are forgiven. I have no right to ask anything of the Father. Any good thing, right? Uh, except through Jesus Christ. So praying in Jesus' name is not something that we're to just tack on to the end of our prayers, we're to acknowledge, if not consciously, certain, certainly subconsciously, that the only reason I'm able to pray anything and be heard is because of the finished work of Christ. And that's praying in Jesus' name. I'm, I'm praying, I'm coming to you based on the cross and the righteousness of Christ. And, of course, what that does also is that we're acknowledging that all glory it goes to the Lord. Every 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 good thing comes from God, and He's the reason why I have any good thing. And so it's kind of saying that the Lord is worthy and we are not. And I think that's kind of the idea here in this uh, prayer of dedication. Uh, 
that Solomon mentions here, when your people pray towards this house. It wasn't like that house is special, but it's what the house represents. And again, it's not mass. Uh, if Christ was crucified once and we're forgiven once, we're justified once. And so that's why I say I think First John 1 9 kind of speaks to all this because anytime they sin, because you got to remember that eventually Israel's carried off into captivity and they don't have the opportunity to make sacrifices. And so that's what's kind of changed is now they can pray towards the place of sacrifice. And so it's kind of like, you know, John 13 when Jesus told Peter, you know, once you've been bathed entirely, you don't need to be bathed entirely again. You just need to wash off the defilements. So once we've been justified at conversion, now we don't need to daily, weekly uh, have a mass. Christ doesn't need to be re-crucified. We don't have to have our, our sins uh, forgiven again. But we do need to pray in light of the cross for when we sin to ask God to forgive us, to, to restore the fellowship and to remove that stuff. It's kind of take, take that, take that washcloth and clean off some of the defilements that we pick up on a daily basis. And so I think you, you kind of see the Old Testament version of all this pointing to all these things. Um, over, again, over in chapter 6 of Daniel, chapter, uh, beginning in verse 10, <clears throat> Our clicker's not working here. Um, it says, when Daniel knew, now, of course, remember, this is, his enemies had tr- kind of tricked Darius into making the decree that no one could pray to any other god for a certain amount of time, and because they were trying to tap, trap Daniel, and when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in the upper chamber, toward, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So there you see uh, Daniel doing what we're reading about here. Uh, one thing we learn here, do we not, is that when the laws of the land interfere with our faith, interfere with our obedience, interfere with biblical teaching, biblical morality, they are no longer valid. And he ignores them. And this is something that I think some people struggle with. And it's not an easy subject because it's just not, it's not like a, everything's black and white. But there are certainly many Christians out there who think that we obey the government. Uh, and, and almost anything, you know, unless it's just like the very worst of things. And now when a government does something, it makes a law that is contrary to God's word, it's no longer valid. The, the law is no longer valid. And so, this isn't just Daniel having his quiet time each day. He's praying in exile for himself and Israel, just as Solomon had laid out. He's not, and of course, what this is doing too is is showing he's not looking towards Darius, the king. Uh, when we do this, we're not. It's, it's, we're saying is I'm not looking to Washington for my help, for what I need. I'm uh, looking towards Jerusalem. He's looking towards where the Lord is. You might say, well, it represents the God. Not the kingdoms of the world, but the kingdom of heaven. And so Daniel would not stop these prayers because he knew that Darius isn't going to help him, isn't what, what he needs. Only God could. And that's 
really what, what it's all this boils down to is because the world doesn't want us to trust in the Lord, and certainly government, uh, at the, 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 the evil part of government that always seems to, it always slides into is that it demands complete obedience and trust, and when you give it to the Lord, it doesn't like that. You know, this is, of course, you see it more in dictatorships and things like that. But you know, almost all governments tend to tend towards that way at some point. The world wants us to look for its security and happiness and satisfaction, for for meaning of life, and it will do anything to tempt us away from a, a sincere love for Christ. And give, and of course, it's not just governments, but the world in general, right? The, the culture it demands conformity. And that's just Satan. Satan uses these things. Uh, he's the, 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 the power behind all that. And so um, in Daniel 9, we have a sample of his prayers. Also, I thought about reading all this just because it's, it's such a good example of this. Um, I, I did put it up on the screen, though. But if you want to turn to uh, the book of Daniel. In chapter 9, maybe we'll just start reading here in verse 1. See how far we want to go. In 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of this reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Namely, 70 years. So in other words, he, in reading Jeremiah the prophet, he realizes that uh, the period of captivity was to be 70 years, and then they were going to be allowed to return. And he says, you know what, we're, we're getting to that point now. So he's going to start praying for it. He's not going to say, well, looks like it's going to happen, and we'll just wait and see what happens. He, he prays for that which is right. His, his prayer is biblical. So he said, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned. So he's praying this on behalf of the people as well, and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. So he acknowledges that the problems that they're going through are, based, are because of their sin. The Lord has merely kept his word. It's their fault. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of, his, of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us shame, open shame, as it is this day to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are Far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery of they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, God, belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. And, and as you go on, you read that. We won't. We won't read any more, I guess. But you just see that the Lord is. This was a day and age where you didn't blame the Lord. 
or at least, you know, when you, when you had a biblical understanding of things, you, you didn't blame the Lord. You didn't question God. Why would you allow this? Why would you allow that? Lord, we're sinners. We, we've, we're experiencing what we had coming. It's not your fault. It's our fault. And, and they're asking God to forgive you. Forgive us. And that is prayer of forgiveness. It's not saying, well, you know, I couldn't help it. Or, you know, like Adam said, well, it's this woman you gave me and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's just admitting fault. And, and that's if, and if we forgive one another, if we ask forgiveness for each other, that's just a great prayer to remember. I'm a fault. It's, you know, and forgive me for what I have done and, and don't make excuses. And so, it was made, uh, this was made under the old covenant. So, you know, having to kind of explain the scenario, let me just make application in one sense that Israel was called to do this. We are not. We, we're not called to pray towards the temple when we're having physical problems. We're called to pray in, in Jesus' name. We're, we are to pray, uh, towards, for, for the forgiveness of sins, but we're to expect something far different than Israel did because what Israel expects and, and what they rightly had a had promised to was that the Lord would would restore them to the land. If they uh before they were in captivity, if God had sent uh a, a poor crop year, you know, a famine or pestilence, and they had the re- right to expect that if they forsook sin and asked for forgiveness that God would restore their crops or whatever he had taken away physically. So there's an old covenant way of understanding this that we have no right to because we're not under the old covenant anymore. No country or locale today is in covenant with the Lord like Israel was. And so they have no promise that if they forsake their covenant sins and obey God, he will give them the same kind of physical blessings like protecting their crops or protecting them from enemies that that's all covenant. We don't live under that covenant anymore. And so we've heard, you know, if you're like me, I'm sure you've heard at some point some preacher on TV or wherever saying that, well, you know, America is is sinning, and uh, if America will confess their sins in the quote Second Corinthians or Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people who are called by my name, right there, should be a big warning sign. Because there's no place where America is called by God's name, right? Um, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So you see something very similar to 1 John 1, 9. That if we call out to God for forgiveness, he will forgive our sins. But remember, Israel, the, the land was Israel's inheritance. And it was their right as long as they obeyed the Lord. And so America, as I said, no location, no country, no ethnic group is uh, under a, the old covenant anymore. And so we have no right to expect that if we uh, ask for forgiveness that God will somehow uh, deal with us in a corporate way like that. America or any other country or group of people. Um, Cannot, cannot expect to be heard as Israel was. Even if we have a national revival as Americans, right? 
let's just say the Lord graciously sends us a great revival. God is not in any covenant with America so that he, where he's promised us physical blessings. So it would be a great thing if God would send a revival. But let's think of it in a New Testament sense. If God sent a revival, what would happen? Well, people would be saved. People would, uh, as, as every true revival uh, has, there would be repentance. There would be changed lives. There would be people being saved. That the churches would swell. Uh, maybe bad institution businesses would be put out of business if it was a big enough revival. But think about, uh, it, it's rare to see this, but think about maybe England back in the days of the Puritans. There were times of great influence of the gospel. There was times even in America early on where there was a couple, there was at least one what we call the Great Awakening where there was true revival with Jonathan Edwards and some of those guys and George Whitcomb. But there was plenty of those who were not saved. So there was great influence of the church for a brief while. But, but it was, they were, it was not a, a place where all of a sudden America became this Christian nation. It became very Christianized and England was Christianized, and there's been other places where this has happened to varying degrees. But they were never under a covenant. And so the idea that if enough of us get right with God, God will all of a sudden uh, just make give us prosperity is a very unbiblical, I think, very un-New Testament thing. Because the New Testament covenant is told that... Um, it is through uh, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So if all of a sudden America became mostly godly, mostly saved, um, if God took away all persecution, you know, where we had uh, every everything was good, all of our crops, you know, we had a great economy, everybody was healthy, all the things that he promised Israel, and health was one of them, then where's the suffering? You know, and, and and if you see where this happens, that no good real no real good comes from it. Uh, people don't we don't do well spiritually when we have physical blessings, when things are going well, um, and, and that's why even the the people who are in the best situation, you know, God will God sends what He needs to send to keep that Christian focused on the Lord, and it's a and, and ease. And riches and health are a great temptation for us to trust the world, to get carried away with the world. You make a little bit of money, uh, it's a great temptation to make a little bit more money, right? It, it's just the way sin works in us. And the, the Lord's not promised the New Testament church anything like that. And if you are familiar with the history of the church and the history of what's going on in the world today, you realize that the vast majority of Christians never have it easy, never have any money, live hand to mouth, uh, are always facing persecution in some way, are never accepted by the world. That's what's one of the things about American church is really, I think, unhealthy. We think that we're doing good if the world respects us. And so, 
we try to do things to make us look good to the world. And, and it doesn't mean that we, we want to be morally upright. And we want to, we, we don't want the world to see sin in us, right? And ungodliness in it. But we, you know, we, we call ourselves the, the so-and-so community church, you know, and we're, 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 it's all about just looking good in this world. When, when, when the, the world hates the church. And, uh, and I think that's why we see the church thrive in other countries where we don't see it in America like that. Again, we, oh yeah, we've got tons of churches, but, 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 but by and large, the churches aren't teaching the Word of God and, and don't care about the Word of God. And, and again, there's not to say there's not a lot to do. But we just gotta remember that we keep ourselves in the new covenant frame of mind. We're, we're living in the new covenant. Blessings aren't physical. It's not to say that the Lord gives you health and it is a blessing. But the blessing is whatever makes me godly, whatever conforms me to Christ. And, and if God gives somebody, say, a bunch of money, and he's able to use that for the good of the kingdom of God, then that's a great blessing. But the God might also give somebody a, a miserable uh Unhealthy life, but he 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 glorifies the Lord anyway, and he and he serves others with what he has, and that's just as great in the kingdom we know uh, in the eyes of God as the other. But you can't have a verse like "All who live God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution," and then assume that when when, when we're doing good, uh, everything's going to go well. It, it, it's it's one or the other. It can't be both. And so don't get tripped up because all of a sudden you lose your job and you go through a rough patch or you lose your health. I, I have my my best friend in Wisconsin who's my age. His wife, we, we found out, and most of you I think already know this. You know, she told us just uh, yesterday, the day before, that is that uh, that she finally knows for sure that she has stage four cancer. You know, considering where it's at, you know, you just assume it's not going to end well for the Lord. Maybe will. Who knows? We pray for that end. But, but, that, but that's it's the Lord. She has now the opportunity to to perhaps die well. And I know that we don't. We that's so full. That's so forward to the American way of thinking that I think a lot of people would. I think there's a lot of Christians who would. Just completely reject everything I'm about to say, right? But to die well, you know, to, to be able to, to, to show people that as I go through this particular trial, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And that I can't wait to be with Him. And while I don't, I'm not happy to have to leave my loved ones, I want to die well. I want to suffer well. I want to be poor well. I want to be unhealthy well. I, I want to have to struggle. If, if the Lord has me struggle in my marriage, you know, whatever. I, I, I'm going to do it well. That's what being a Christian is. It's, it's not having everything so put our life so in order that everything's just well. And it's not to say that that doesn't happen. But 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 again, the the vast majority of Christians, their life is not 
God, I got everything in order. They're struggling and they are suffering and, you know, and they're doing well. But that's New Testament mindset. That's not Old Testament mindset. The Old Testament mindset is what we have with the health and wealth preachers, right? Because they, they can't, they have no idea of how the New Testament relates to the Old Testament and what it means that, that one has passed away and that we're no longer under that covenant. So just some things I think it's very important for us to understand. Under the old covenant, when people suffered bad crops and diseases, when they were ruled by their enemies, it was because they were displeasing the Lord. It was a direct line, a connection there. But under the new covenant, we realize that physical physical comfort is no indicator of God's love. And that's important too, because it's easy for someone who's struggling in some way to look at the person down the pew who isn't and thinking, what have I done that he hasn't done? Or what did he do that I didn't do? You know, compare yourself to them. And, and then, you know, God's got, he's doing his thing with that person. you got to worry about, you, you do whatever God wants you to do. Because that, that, that connection no longer exists. The very, I think some of the most exalted saints in glory are going to be those who suffered who, who nobody knew about, who nobody cared about, it will be, will be the Lazarus of the world, or the rich fool who, uh, or the, the, the rich man who, who made Lazarus just eat his crumbs. They'll be the ones highly exalted, and the Lord says as much, right, when Lazarus was leaning in Abraham's bosom after he died, right? He had glory, not the person who had it easy necessarily. So he's already given us every promise that we need to be fulfilled in Christ that can never be taken away no matter what our physical circumstances are. And, and I realize that sitting here in a comfortable air-conditioned um, building with plenty to eat, with plenty of money in the bank, it's easy for us to, to just kind of our eyes to glaze over and man, whatever. But it's the truth. And, and I think there are people, the church proves that in, in places all over the world on a daily basis. So sin will always be what it is before God. But in Christ, he has given us ultimate victory over it. And so the sins of God's people uh, are, what we, one thing we see here is in being able to pray towards the temple and having our sins forgiven. In a spirit, we kind of see a spiritual thing. We don't have to be doing anything. We, we just need to pray towards that one sacrifice that has already been made. And, and we, so our sins don't have to keep us in this morass, uh, this cul-de-sac of I can't ever get, escape it, you know, it's just always on me. We have a way to have our sins forgiven and to have our joy restored. And so verses 41 through 43 looks forward to when the Gentiles are taking part in the kingdom. When, when the foreigner hears and sees what God has done and he's attracted to it in some way, uh, they can pray towards the temple. Um, the temple was not to be Israel's best kept secret. Just like the gospel is not a, a secret of the church, right? We, we are here to uh, tell the world about Jesus Christ. That he's the joy of our salvation. Uh, Isaiah 2, 2. 
And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, there are those, good brothers, who believe that what this is saying is that someday Christ will sit on a physical throne over in Jerusalem and all the people will flock to it. And I guess if he's over there, I I guess they will. I, that makes sense, right? Or it could be the the church who's at that city on a hill as we proclaim Christ, as we uplift Christ, that all the nations, all the elect, we could say, will flock to the gospel, will flock to Christ, will flock to the King of Kings. That's how I see this. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. Again, where's the house of God? Is it that there's no temple over there? And I, even if they rebuilt it, I don't think that would ever be called the house of God by anybody who knows better. This is the house of God. We are the house of God. That He may what what happens in the house of God? That He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so I believe we are Zion. This this building here is Zion, and it's not the building, but the people, as we gather together and the word goes forth. We notice here the glory of the Lord that attracts the nations. Um, we don't have to try to impress people to get them to come to Christ. If somebody comes to Christ because you drive a nice car and are healthy, and they want that, and they think, well, you know, if that's... If, I, if Christ would give me that, then I'm going to come to Christ. We know that you haven't really come to Christ, right? You, that, that's just a false religion. I used to know, I knew a woman in, in New York. I, I, I have no reason not to believe that she was, I believe she was a Christian. I remember uh, talking about how that, kind of on this subject, that... Um, what we need, if we love our, uh, and this might be something I was going to say in the next service, so if I do, forgive me, but if, if we love our brother or our family and our friends, um, we're to figure out a way to present the gospel to them, which means that we, we're, we're going to offend them at some point. And she had this idea, and she made it very plain, clear, that well, my job is to have a relationship with my family. So I don't want to do anything that's going to cause a break in that relationship. Because how can I be a witness if that's the case? Well, how can you be a witness if you don't offend them, right? The gospel is offensive. Jesus says that, you, that I've come to cause a rift in your family. Not because we're being mean or ugly. But when you confront someone about the fact that their sins can send them to hell, that unless they repent, you know, let's say if you're if you're if you think your number one job is to get along with your family, when will you ever give them the gospel? When will you ever confront them about their sin, about their need of Christ? You, you can't have it both ways, you know. So I think I'm gonna I was gonna mention a part something about that in. Uh, the next service, so I won't say any more about that. But 
this this idea that the, the, what, what the world needs to see in us is Christ. They need to see that we're that we love Christ more than anything else. And of course, what they also need to see is not just our testimony. But they need to hear the gospel. They need to be told that unless you repent, you shall also perish. Right, like Jesus said, and not worry about uh, their impression of us, but to give them the truth and. And those are things that you have to work through and think about, obviously. There's a different, you know, a lot of things that could be said about all that. But anyway, we're getting towards the end here, so I'll go ahead and stop and pick up a little bit of this at the end next week. Any, any questions or comments? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would watch over us this day and open up our hearts and minds to hear the Word of God. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be active in speaking to us and in uh, exposing the things in our life that uh, dishonor you and or deform us to the image of your dear son. Pray for those who are not here, those who are away, Lord, that you bring them back safely, and uh, we might all be together again soon. And we ask your blessings upon the second service now. In Jesus' name we pray.